Section 39 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 4. Chapter 37. Letters 1898 to Howells and Twitchell life in vienna payment of the debts assassination of the empress the end of january saw the payment of the last of mark twain's debts once more he stood free before the world a world that sounded his praises the latter fact rather amused him honest men must be pretty scarce he said when they make so much fuss over even a defective specimen when the end was in sight clemens wrote the news to howells in a letter as full of sadness as of triumph to w d howells in new york hotel metropole vienna january twenty two ninety eight dear howells look at those ghastly figures i used to write at hartford eighteen seventy one there was no susie then there's no susie now and how much lies between one long lovely stretch of scented fields and meadows and shady woodlands and suddenly sahara you speak of the glorious days of that old time and they were it is my quarrel that traps like that are set susie and winnie given us in miserable sport and then taken away about the last time i saw you i described to you the culminating disaster in a book i was going to write and will yet when the stroke is further away a man's dead daughter brought to him when he had been through all other possible misfortunes and i said it couldn't be done as it ought to be done except by a man who had lived it it must be written with the blood out of a man's heart i couldn't know then how soon i was to be made competent i have thought of it many a time since if you were here i think we could cry down each other's necks as in your dream for we are a pair of old derelicts drifting around now with some of our passengers gone and the sunniness of the others in eclipse i couldn't get along without work now i bury myself in it up to the ears long hours eight and nine on a stretch sometimes and all the days sundays included it isn't all for print by any means for much of it fails to suit me fifty thousand words of it in the past year it was because of the deadness which invaded me when susie died but i've made a change lately into dramatic work and i find it absorbingly entertaining i don't know that i can write a play that will play but no matter i'll write half a dozen that won't anyway dear me i didn't know there was such fun in it i'll write twenty that won't play I get into immense spirits as soon as my day is fairly started. 
of course a good deal of this friskiness comes of my being inside of land on the webster and company debts i mean private we've lived close to the bone and saved every cent we could and there's no undisputed claim now that we can't cash i have marked this private because it is for the friends who are attending to the matter for us in new york to reveal it when they want to and if they want to there are only two claims which i dispute and which i mean to look into personally before i pay them but they are small both together they amount to only twelve thousand five hundred dollars i hope you will never get the like of the load saddled on to you that was saddled on to me three years ago and yet there is such a solid pleasure in paying the things that i reckon maybe it is worth while to get into that kind of a hobble after all mrs clemens gets millions of delight out of it and the children have never uttered one complaint about the scrimping from the beginning we all send you and all of you our love mark howells wrote i wish you could understand how unshaken you are you old tower in every way your foundations are struck so deep that you will catch the sunshine of immortal years and bask in the same light as cervantes and shakespeare the clemens apartments at the metropole became a sort of social clearing-house of the viennese art and literary life much more like an embassy than the home of a mere literary man celebrities in every walk of life persons of social and official rank writers for the press assembled there on terms hardly possible in any other home in vienna wherever mark twain appeared in public he was a central figure now and then he read or spoke to aid some benefit and these were great gatherings attended by members of the royal family it was following one such event that the next letter was written private to rev j h twitchell in hartford hotel metropole vienna february three nine to eight dear joe there's that letter that i began so long ago you see how it is can't get time to finish anything i pile up lots of work nevertheless there may be idle people in the world but i'm not one of them i say private up there because i've got an adventure to tell and you mustn't let a breath of it get out first i thought i would lay it up along with a thousand others that i've laid up for the same purpose to talk to you about but those others have vanished out of my memory and that must not happen with this the other night i lectured for a vienna charity and at the end of it livy and i were introduced to a princess who is aunt to the heir apparent of the imperial throne a beautiful lady with a beautiful spirit and very cordial in her praises of my books and thanks to me for writing them and glad to meet me face to face and shake me by the hand just the kind of princess that adorns a fairy tale and makes it the prettiest tale there is very well we long ago found that when you are noticed by supremacies the correct etiquette is to go 
within a couple of days and pay your respects in the quite simple form of writing your name in the visitor's book kept in the office of the establishment that is the end of it and everything is squared up in shipshape so at noon today livy and i drove to the archducal palace and got by the sentries all right and asked the grandly uniformed porter for the book and said we wished to write our names in it and he called a servant in livery and was sending us upstairs and said her royal highness was out but would soon be in of course livy said no no we only want the book but he was firm and said you are americans yes then you are expected please go upstairs but indeed we are not expected please let us have the book and her royal highness will be back in a very little while she commanded me to tell you so and you must wait well the soldiers were there close by there was no use trying to resist so we followed the servant up but when he tried to beguile us into a drawing-room livy drew the line she wouldn't go in and she wouldn't stay up there either she said the princess might come in at any moment and catch us and it would be too infernally ridiculous for anything so we went downstairs again to my unspeakable regret for it was too dull and a comedy to spoil i was hoping and praying the princess would come and catch us up there and that those other americans who were expected would arrive and be taken for impostors by the portier and shot by the sentinels and then it would all go into the papers and be cabled all over the world and make an immense stir and be perfectly lovely and by that time the princess would discover that we were not the right ones and the minister of war would be ordered out and the garrison and they would come for us and there would be another prodigious time and that would get cabled too and well joe i was in a state of perfect bliss but happily oh so happily that big portier wouldn't let us out he was sorry but it must obey orders we must go back upstairs and wait poor livy i couldn't help but enjoy her distress she said we were in a fix and how were we going to explain if the princess should arrive before the rightful americans came we went upstairs again laid off our wraps and were conducted through one drawn room and into another and left alone there and the door closed upon us livy was in a state of mind she said it was too theatrically ridiculous and that i would never be able to keep my mouth shut that i would be sure to let it out and it would get into the papers and she tried to make me promise promise what i said to be quiet about this indeed i won't it's the best thing that ever happened i'll tell it and add to it and i wish joe and howells were here to make it perfect i can't make all the rightful blunders myself it takes all three of us to do justice to an opportunity like this i would just like to see howells get down to his work and explain and lie and work his futile and inventionless subterfuges when that princess comes raging in here and wanting to know but livy could not hear fun 
it was not a time to be trying to be funny we were in a most miserable and shameful situation and if just then the door spread wide and our princess and four more and three little princes flowed in our princess and her sister the archduchess marie therese mother to the imperial heir and to the young girl archduchess present and aunt to the three little princes and we shook hands all around and sat down and had a most sociable good time for half an hour and by and by it turned out that we were the right ones and had been sent for by a messenger who started too late to catch us at the hotel we were invited for two o'clock but we beat that arrangement by an hour and a half wasn't it a rattling good comedy situation seems a kind of pity we were the right ones it would have been such nuts to see the right ones come and get fired out and we chatting along comfortably and nobody suspecting us for impostors we send lots and lots of love mark the reader who has followed these pages has seen how prone mark twain was to fall a victim to the lure of a patent right how he wasted several small fortunes on profitless contrivances and one large one on that insatiable demon of intricacy and despair the page typesetter it seems incredible that after that experience and its attending disaster he should have been tempted again but scarcely was the ink dry on the receipts from his creditors when he was once more borne into the clouds on the prospect of millions perhaps even billions to be made from a marvellous carpet-pattern machine, the invention of Chesapanic, an Austrian genius. That Clemens appreciated his own tendencies is shown by the parenthetic line with which he opens his letter on the subject to Mr. Rogers. Certainly no man was ever a more perfect prototype of Colonel Sellers than the creator of that lovely, irrepressible visionary. To Mr. Rogers in New York March 24, 98. Dear Mr. Rogers, I feel like Colonel Sellers. Mr. Kleinberg, agent for Chesapanic, came according to appointment at 8.30 last night and brought his English-speaking secretary. I asked questions about the auxiliary invention, which I call number two, and got as good an idea of it as I could it is a machine it automatically punches the holes in the jacquard cards and does it with mathematical accuracy it will do for a dollar what now costs three dollars so it has value but number two is the great thing the designing invention it saves nine dollars out of ten dollars and the jacquard looms must have it then i arrived at my new project and said to him in substance this you are on the point of selling the number two patents to belgium italy etc i suggest that you stop those negotiations and put those people off two or three months they are anxious now they will not be less anxious then just the reverse people always want a thing that is denied them so far as i know no great world patent has ever yet been placed in the grip of a single corporation this is a good time to begin 
we have to do a good deal of guesswork here because we cannot get hold of just the statistics we want still we have some good statistics and i will use those for a test you say that of the fifteen hundred austrian textile factories eight hundred use the jacquard then we will guess that of the four thousand american factories two thousand use the jacquard and must have our number two you say that a middle-sized austrian factory employs from twenty to thirty designers and pays them from eight hundred to three thousand odd florins a year a florin is two francs let us call the average wage fifteen hundred florins six hundred dollars let us supply these figures the low wages too to the two thousand american factories with this difference to guard against overguessing that instead of allowing for twenty to thirty designers to a middle-sized factory we allow only an average of ten to each of the two thousand factories a total of twenty thousand designers wages at six hundred dollars a total of twelve million dollars let us consider that number two will reduce this expense to two million dollars a year the saving is five million dollars per each of the two hundred million dollars of capital employed in the jacquard business over there let us consider that in the countries covered by this patent an aggregate of one billion five hundred million dollars of capital is employed in factories requiring number two the saving as above is seventy five million dollars a year the company holding in its grip all these patents would collar fifty million dollars of that as its share possibly more competition would be at an end in the jacquard business on this planet price cutting would end fluctuations in values would cease the business would be the safest and surest in the world commercial panics could not seriously affect it its stock would be as choice an investment as government bonds when the patents died the company would be so powerful that it could still keep the whole business in its hands would you like to grant me the privilege of placing the whole jacquard business of the world in the grip of a single company and don't you think that the business would grow grow like a weed ah america it is the country of the big let me get my breath then we will talk so then we talked talked to pretty late would germany and england join the combination i said the company would know how to persuade them then i asked for a supplementary option to cover the world and we parted i am taking all precautions to keep my name out of print in connection with this matter and we will now keep the invention itself out of print as well as we can descriptions of it have been granted to the dry goods economist new york and to a syndicate of american papers i have asked mr kleinberg to suppress these and he feels pretty sure he can do it with love s l c if this splendid enthusiasm had not cooled by the time a reply came from mr rogers it must have received a sudden chill from the letter which he enclosed the brief and concise report from a carpet machine expert who said i do not feel that it would be of any value to us in our mills 
and the number of jacquard looms in america is so limited that i am of the opinion that there is no field for a company to develop the invention here a cursory examination of the pamphlet leads me to place no very high value upon the invention from a practical standpoint with the receipt of this letter carpet pattern projects would seem to have suddenly ceased to be a factor in mark twain's calculations such a letter in the early days of the type machine would have saved him a great sum in money and years of disappointment but perhaps he would not have heeded it then the year eighteen ninety eight brought the spanish-american war clemens was constitutionally against all wars but writing to twichell whose son had enlisted we gathered that this one was an exception to rev j h twichell in hartford carlton lautgeben near vienna june seventeen ninety eight dear joe you are living your war days over again in dave and it must be a strong pleasure mixed with a sauce of apprehension enough to make it just schmeck as the germans say dave will come out with two or three stars on his shoulder straps if the war holds and then we shall all be glad it happened we started with bull run before dewey and hobson have introduced an improvement on the game this time i have never enjoyed a war even in written history as i'm enjoying this one for this is the worthiest one that was ever fought so far as my knowledge goes it is a worthy thing to fight for one's freedom it is another sight finer to fight for another man's and i think this is the first time it has been done oh never mind charlie warner he would interrupt the raising of lazarus he would say the will has been probated the property distributed it will be a world of trouble to settle the rose better leave well enough alone don't ever disturb anything where it's going to break the soft smooth flow of things and wobble our tranquillity company Shh. it happens every day and we came out here to be quiet love to y'all mark they were spending the summer at kalten lautgeben a pleasant village near vienna but apparently not entirely quiet many friends came out from vienna including a number of visiting americans clemens however appears to have had considerable time for writing as we gather from the next to howells to w d howells in america carlton lautgeben by vienne august sixteen ninety eight dear howells your letter came yesterday it then occurred to me that i might have known per mental telegraph that it was due for a couple of weeks ago when the weekly came containing that handsome reference to me i was powerfully moved to write you and my letter went on writing itself while i was at work at my other literature during the day but next day my other literature was still urgent and so on and so on so my letter didn't get put into ink at all but i see now that you were writing about that time therefore a part of my stir could have come across the atlantic per mental telegraph 
In 1876 or 75, I wrote 40,000 words of a story called Simon Wheeler, wherein the nub was the preventing of an execution through testimony furnished by a mental telegraph from the other side of the globe. I had a lot of people scattered about the globe who carried in their pockets something like the old mesmerizer button, made of different metals, and when they wanted to call up each other and have a talk, they pressed the button or did something, I don't remember what, and communication was at once opened. I didn't finish the story, though I re-began it in several new ways, and spent altogether seventy thousand words on it, then gave it up and threw it aside. This much as preliminary to this remark, some day people will be able to call each other up from any part of the world and talk by mental telegraph and not merely by impression. The impression will be articulated into words. It could be a terrible thing, but it won't be, because in the upper civilizations everything like sentimentality, I was going to say sentiment, will presently get materialized out of people along with the already fading spiritualities. And so when a man is called who doesn't wish to talk, he will be like those visitors you mention not chosen and will be frankly damned and shut off speaking of the ill luck of starting a piece of literary work wrong and again and again always aware that there's a way if you could only think it out which would make the thing slide effortlessly from the pen the one right way the sole form for you the other forms being for men whose line those forms are, or who are capabler than yourself. I've had no end of experience in that, and maybe I'm the only one. Let us hope so. Last summer I started sixteen things wrong, three books and thirteen magazine articles, and could only make two little wee things, fifteen hundred words altogether, succeed only that out of piles and stacks of diligently wrought manuscript the labor of six weeks unremitting effort i could make all of those things go if i would take the trouble to re-begin each one half a dozen times on a new plan but none of them was important enough except one the story i in the wrong form mapped out in paris three or four years ago and told you about in new york under seal of confidence no other person knows of it but Mrs. Clemens. The story to be called Which Was the Dream. A week ago I examined the manuscript, 10,000 words, and saw that the plan was a totally impossible one for me. But a new plan suggested itself, and straight away the tale began to slide from the pen with ease and confidence. I think I've struck the right one this time. I've already put 12,000 words of it on paper, and Mrs. Clemens is pretty outspokenly satisfied with it, a hard critic to content. I feel sure that all of the first half of the story, and I hope three-fourths, will be comedy, but by the former plan the whole of it, except the first three chapters, would have been tragedy and unendurable almost. I think I can carry the reader a long way before he suspects that I'm laying a tragedy trap. In the present form I could spend sixteen books out of it with comfort and joy. But I shall deny myself, 
and restrict it to one. If you should see a little short story in a magazine in the autumn called My Platonic Sweetheart, written three weeks ago, that is not this one. It may have been a suggester, though. I expect all these singular privacies to interest you, and you are not to let on that they don't. We are leaving this afternoon for Ischel, to use that as a base for the baggage, and then gad around ten days among the lakes and mountains to rest up Mrs. Clemens, who is jaded with housekeeping. I hope I can get a chance to work a little in spots. I can't tell. But you do it. Therefore, why should you think I can't? Remainder Missing the dream story was never completed. It was the same that he had worked on in London, and perhaps again in Switzerland. It would be tried at other times and in other forms, but it never seemed to accommodate itself to a central idea, so that the good writing in it eventually went to waste. The short story mentioned, My Platonic Sweetheart, a charming idyllic tale, was not published during Mark Twain's lifetime. Two years after his death, it appeared in Harper's Magazine. The assassination of the Empress of Austria at Geneva was the startling event of that summer. In a letter to Twitchell, Clemens presents the tragedy in a few vivid paragraphs. Later, he treated it at some length in a magazine article which, very likely because of personal relations with members of the Austrian court, he withheld from print. It has since been included in a volume of essays, What is Man, etc. To Rev. J. H. Twitcher in Hartford. Carlton Lautgeven, September 13, 98. Dear Joe, You are mistaken. People don't send us the magazines. No, Harper, Century, and McClure do. An example I should like to recommend to other publishers and so I thank you very much for sending me Brander's article. When you say I like Brander Matthews, he impresses me as a man of parts and power. I back you right up to the hub. I feel the same way. And when you say he has earned your gratitude for cuffing me for my crimes against the leather stockings and the vicar, I ain't making any objections. Done your gratitude. His article is as sound as a nut. Brander knows literature and loves it. He can talk about it and keep his temper. He can state his case so lucidly and so fairly and so forcibly that you have to agree with him, even when you don't agree with him. And he can discover and praise such merits as a book has even when they are half a dozen diamonds scattered through an acre of mud. And so he has a right to be a critic. To detail just the opposite of the above invoice is to describe me. I haven't any right to criticize books, and I don't do it except when I hate them. I often want to criticize Jane Austen, but her books madden me so that I can't conceal my frenzy from the reader, and therefore I have to stop every time I begin. That good and unoffending lady, the Empress, is killed by a madman and I'm living in the midst of world history again. The Queen's Jubilee last year 
the invasion of the Reichsrath by the police, and now this murder, which will still be talked of and described and painted a thousand years from now. To have a personal friend of the wearer of the crown bust in at the gate in the deep dusk of the evening and say in a voice broken with tears, My God, the Empress is murdered, and fly toward her home before we can utter a question, why, it brings the giant event home to you, makes you a part of it and personally interested. It is as if your neighbor Antony should come flying and say, Caesar is butchered the head of the world is fallen of course there is no talk but of this the mourning is universal and genuine the consternation is stupefying the austrian empire is being draped with black vienna will be a spectacle to see by next saturday when the funeral cortege marches we are invited to occupy a room in the sumptuous new hotel the Krantz, where we are to live during the fall and winter, and view it, and we shall go. Speaking of Mrs. Leiter, there is a noble dame in Vienna about whom they retail similar slanders. She said in French, she is weak in French, that she had been spending a Sunday afternoon in a gathering of the Demimonde, meaning the unknown land, that mercantile land, that mysterious half-world which underlies the aristocracy. But these malapropries are always inventions. They don't happen. Yes, I wish we could have some talks. I'm full to the eyelids. Had a noble good one with Parker and Dunham. Land, but we were grateful for that visit. Yours with all our loves, Mark enclosed with the foregoing among the inadequate attempts to account for the assassination we must concede high rank to the german emperors he justly describes it as a deed unparalleled for ruthlessness and then adds that it was ordained from above i think this verdict will not be popular above a man is either a free agent or he isn't if a man is a free agent, this prisoner is responsible for what he has done. But if a man is not a free agent, if the deed was ordained from above, there is no rational way of making this prisoner even partially responsible for it, and the German court cannot condemn him without manifestly committing a crime. Logic is logic and by disregarding its laws even emperors as capable and acute as William II can be beguiled into making charges which should not be ventured upon except in the shelter of plenty of lightning rods. Mark The end of the year 1898 found Mark Twain once more in easy, even luxurious circumstances. The hard work and good fortune which had enabled him to pay his debts had, in the course of another year, provided what was comparative affluence. His report to Howells is characteristic and interesting. To W. D. Howells in New York. Hotel Krantz, Vienne. L. Never Market, 6. December 30, 98. Dear Howells, I begin with the date, 
including all the details, though I shall be interrupted presently by a South African acquaintance who is passing through, and it may be many days before I catch another leisure moment. Note how suddenly a thing can become habit, and how indestructible the habit is afterward. In your house in Cambridge a hundred years ago, Mrs. Howes said to me, Here's a bunch of your letters, and the dates are of no value, because you don't put any in. The years, anyway. That remark deceased me with a habit which has cost me worlds of time and torture and ink and millions of vain efforts and buckets of tears to break it. And here it is, yet. I could easier get rid of a virtue. I hope it will interest you, for I have no one else who would much care to know it, that here lately the dread of leaving the children in difficult circumstances has died down and disappeared, and I am now having peace from that long, long nightmare, and can sleep as well as anyone. Every little while, for these three years now, Mrs. Clemens has come with pencil and paper and figured up the condition of things. She keeps the accounts and the bank book, and has proven to me that the clouds are lifting, and so has hoisted my spirits temporarily and kept me going till another figuring up was necessary. Last night she figured up for her own satisfaction, not mine, and found that we own a house and furniture in Hartford, that my English and American copyrights pay an income which represents a value of $200,000, and that we have $107,000 cash in the bank. I have been out and bought a box of six-cent cigars. I was smoking four-and-a-half-centers before. At the house of an English friend, on Christmas Eve, we saw the mousetrap played, and well played. I thought the house would kill itself with laughter. By George, they played with life, and it was most devastatingly funny. And it was well they did, for they put us Clemenses in the front seat, and if they played it poorly, I would have assaulted them. The head young man and girl were Americans. The other parts were taken by English, Irish, and Scotch girls. Then there was a nigger minstrel show, of the genuine old sort, and I enjoyed that, too, for the nigger show was always a passion of mine. This one was created and managed by a Quaker doctor from Philadelphia, 23 years old, and he was the middleman. There were nine others, five Americans from five states and a Scotchman, two Englishmen and an Irishman, all postgraduate medical young fellows, of course, or it could be music, but it would be bound to be one or the other. It's quite true. I don't read you as much as I ought, nor anywhere near half as much as I want to. Still, I read you all I get a chance to. I saved up your last story to read when the number should be complete, but before that time arrived, some other admirer of yours carried off the papers. I will watch admirers of yours when the silver wedding journey begins, and that will not happen again. The last chance at a bound book of yours was in London nearly two years ago. 
the last volume of your short things by the Harpers. I read the whole book twice through and some of the chapters several times, and the reason that that was as far as I got with it was that I lent it to another admirer of yours, and he is admiring it yet. Your admirers have ways of their own. I don't know where they get them. Yes, our project is to go home next autumn, if we find we can afford to live in New York. We've asked a friend to inquire about flats and expenses, but perhaps nothing will come of it. We do afford to live in the finest hotel in Vienna, and have four bedrooms, a dining room, a drawing room, three bathrooms, and three Vorzimmers, and food but we couldn't get the half of it in New York for the same money, $600 a month. Susie hovers about us this holiday week, and the shadows fall all about us of the days when we went gypsying a long time ago. Death is so kind, so benignant to whom he loves, but it goes by us others and will not look our way. We saw the master of Palmyra last night. How death, with the gentleness and majesty, made the human grand folk around him seem little and trivial and silly. With love from all of us to all of you. Mark. End of section 39. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.